Hey, Dan, uh, sorry, I'm still on the road this week, but uh, really glad we could hook up via Zoom. Oh, yeah, it's, it's no problem. But listen, I got to tell you, um, since you've been away so much, I've started dreaming about you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, I'm afraid to ask, but uh, what are your dreams about? Well, in my dreams, we're in the CGMU studio, deep within the concourse below the Fairmont Hotel. We're sharing a coffee. We're trading one-liners with producer Adam. And we're happy. We're also happy and we're being funny and we're having such a good time. That actually sounds pretty nice. So you are you really you're really dreaming about me? No, I'm not dreaming about you, dude. I'm tired of doing these chats via Zoom. I want you back in the studio because you know when you and I get face to face, that's when the magic happens. Okay, okay, my bad. Uh I've just been traveling, it's been crazy, been all over the place. Uh, I'll be home soon. Okay, well, that's good. Because if I ever start dreaming about you, I mean, really dreaming about you and all the good times we had on the podcast when you were in town, the Lone Ranger may actually become the Lone Ranger. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Do you ever notice how we threaten each other a lot in the opening segment? So that happens to be there is, there is kind of a residue or a shadow of violence occasionally in our uh, a, a latent hostility. Um, yeah, you know, like it's I don't actually resent the fact that you're much in demand and you're you know, you're traveling the country, you know, I'm, I'm you know, maybe a little envious, uh, but. Uh, well, I'm, don't be envious of where I am right now. Right now I'm in Port Elgin, Ontario, uh, actually in a small town called Chesley. And I'm with a couple hundred teachers uh, in a school district down here. Uh, the people, the ministry from the Ministry of Education is here. Uh, it's not all that exciting when you're completely surrounded on four sides of you with farms and dandelions. Uh, okay, so city boy, like now that we're both identified as modified, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Out us for our rural audience uh, that we're both city boys. Uh, no, but you also got to spend a little time in Toronto, right? And you did some cool stuff there. Yeah, I've been. I'm on sort of a sort of a mini tour of South Hamil, uh, South, South Ontario. Sorry, but I was in Hamilton. And uh, that's where I was. And then down near St. Catherine, a little bit in Niagara, uh, working with teachers and other groups down there. Um, but, you know, I got a chance to go to, well, I was here during the Great Leafs loss, but I'm not going to bring that up for you. No, we're not talking about that. And But I did happen to get to see the Eastern final of the National Lacrosse League, which is weird because it's the Toronto Rock, but they play in Hamilton. Um, and... Not only is that kind of weird, a reminder that Toronto's colonizing everywhere, <laughs> but then second is that uh, they lost, but the Toronto team has no Indigenous players for lacrosse. Whoa, wait a minute here. Even like I've never seen, well, I did see some professional lacrosse way back in the day. Like uh, back, I my dad happened to be friends with a guy who for a time was the uh, head coach of the New Westminster Salmon Bellies which is a very, you know, a very venerable professional lacrosse organization on the West Coast. And I did get to see it. My recollection was 
A, it's crazy. Like, it's absolutely nuts watching professional lacrosse. But B, even I know that the best professional lacrosse players are Indigenous. How could they have no Indigenous? Like, they have to go out of their way to have no Indigenous players? It, it is remarkable because not only does Toronto not have any Indigenous players. I mean, they're a good team, but they lost to the Buffalo Bandits. No, not the Buffalo Bandits are in the National Lacrosse League final, I think, against Calgary, I think. Um, but the... The Buffalo Bandits have two uh, Indigenous players, both from Ontario, both Mohawk or Haudenosaunee, and the most remarkable player. And I, I you know, encourage everybody to to check him out. Um, his name is Tahoka uh, Nanticoke, and man, that guy is out of control. He's from Six Nations in Ontario. Uh, he scored, I think, four goals out of the seventeen. Uh, Buffalo just totally wrapped the floor with uh, with Toronto and won the Eastern Conference final. Uh, 17 to 8 but I mean it was it was amazing watching this Nanticoke player he was unbelievable and and the fact that about a third of the crowd was Indigenous as well and and most of them were supporting Buffalo it was a very sort of surreal situation but um, again Toronto lost and I don't want to just continue to belabor the point I'm actually starting to feel bad from for people from Toronto right now Okay, well, moving on. <laughs> I like how every time I bring up, <laughs> no, 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 moving on. You know, it's like I will just say this. Okay, and this is the last word that we will say. The first about anything, and the last that you said. The first and the last words about the Toronto Maple Leafs is that every year the only truth in professional hockey is that there are thirty-two teams in the NHL. And only and thirty one of them don't win the Stanley Cup final. Uh, period. Paragraph. Moving on now. Uh, so uh, on a, on a, on a more yeah, it is a more serious but intriguing note. So I, I got to tell you, I didn't know how to act or react when the feasibility study came out with a hundred up to one hundred eighty four million dollars to search the now out of service landfill north of Winnipeg to see if there there possibly could be more uh, remains of the serial killer's victims. But Ottawa, which is the, that's the journalistic term that we use, short form for federal government, appears to be supportive in general. I don't know if they're going to support that exact number, but it it, seem, it seems that, the, like the Prime Minister came out and said, that in the face of that number being posted, we're going to do whatever we can to help. It, so, like, it, tell me, like, what, what do you think is going on? Like, are, are this could be, uh, I don't know, this has got to be exponentially more expensive than any other forensic search, criminal search that's ever taken place in this country. Maybe it's time. You know, both of us have over the weeks uh, studied this issue and, and the real issue at the Prairie, uh, I always get this name wrong, the Prairie Green Landfill. Um the the one that's uh, probably under the most amount of investigation. Never mind the other uh, issues that are going with the two landfills. But the the issue is pretty simple in that the police know that there or have said they suspect there are the remains of at least two women there, and that means that they've acknowledged it. There's 184 million dollars of an estimate to say up to three years of investigation. So this would be, I mean, you know, anyone who sort of studies the issue knows that there's two major things involving landfills and particularly the, the prairie Gra- grain landfill which is that it's very heavily packed down 
And as a result, it's not, that's not an excuse, but that's a reality that um, to do any extraction or any investigation is very labor intensive work. It's likely $184 million is conservative uh, in terms of how much that would take. Um, think of it in terms of uh, they're doing any kind of investigation of this magnitude is not just about digging, but it's also all the other things, the archaeologists, the researchers, the the transport, the just the funding of keeping a 24-hour task team out there um, to protect the site, never mind, you know, on top of that. Yeah. So. All you really need to know is that the the Indigenous community has been demanding this. There was a very passionate um, description by the survivors at the press conference. And, you know, while there's been the, the findings of uh, of Rebecca Contois, I mean, Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron and and uh, famously known as the Buffalo Woman, are there's no sight of where they are. And if you know where they are, then... Uh, I think everyone would agree that they should something should be done about it. Uh, the feasibility study, I think, is is kind of a perfect example of this issue as a whole, which is that when Canada deals with it so late, or mm -hmm. when police yeah. officers mishandle the issue, uh, meaning use terms like it's not feasible, then you get this situation. Uh, when you have a lack of sensitivity that comes from the very beginning, from the very highest echelons of the police, when you have uh, a government that has the 231 calls for justice but won't move on them very speedily or rapidly, mm -hmm. and then provincial governments that tend to turn a blind eye. I mean, Heather Stephenson's government, like most provincial governments in the country, has just moved nowhere on the issue of murder, missing Indigenous women and girls. You get a serial killer who... Yeah, who creates the situation and we all now have to inherit and clean it up in some way. My original thought, like the first thing I did when I saw the, the story on the feasibility study and then I read some of it was um, how long were they searching uh, Robert Picton's farm in BC? I, I think that that is an investigation that could inform uh, how we should view this. The, the dates are a little fuzzy, but I think it was essentially a two-year investigation and it involved forensic archaeologists and, you know, academic uh, specialists in this area, you know, 2002, 2003. And the B.C. government estimated the cost at that time, 20 years ago, at $70 million. So I'm not smart enough to do the inflation uh, adjusted dollars calculation. I never have been. But OK, so like to tell you the truth now, that helped me sort of see that the number that's being floated right now may not actually be an extraordinary number. I think it is uh, a number that could have been smaller if the if we had developed a protocol that as soon as they they found some remains or as soon as they realized that there was a location where uh, the remains were likely, that there should have been an instantaneous move to shut the place down. My understanding from talking to the provincial government is that the company has been very cooperative. Like they, had, you know, they they have uh, been, and they are actually willing to consult on the investigation. Which I mean, I don't think you can really ask more from the uh, the private company that owns the landfill. But you know, it is, and I mean, it's unfortunately it's become um, you know the story of the way the Winnipeg police interact saying the wrong thing right away, not saying the right things until some time has passed, 
not taking actions. Often inflaming the issue as it goes along. Um, you know, like I, I wrote in my column that the the attempt to try to talk about, um, you know, Indigenous women as an issue always comes across so badly by the Winnipeg Post. Yeah. I think for the most part, because the relationship has become so acrimonious uh, and so toxic that Indigenous women don't want, to appear, don't want to appear with the Winnipeg police. But if you could somehow figure out how to repair that relationship, so many things could be dealt with in a much more effective way. Um, yeah, I, I mean, skepticism that comes from uh, repeated behavior for, uh, at the hands of an institution, uh, you know, you you just you can't expect it, you know, in a in a year uh, or a couple of years, because really the Winnipeg Police Service has to start demonstrating that it has new sensibilities. It, it's developed new instincts and muscle memories around these cases until they they've done that basically everything they do and we've seen this in other cases where they've come out very quickly and delivered an opinion about an investigation or a case and that reaction is well we don't like why would we listen to you we don't uh we really don't trust you this is an interesting segue actually uh to our interview this week uh I mean, which really yeah a hundred percent that you know it's not a uh i think it's related that there's one of the one of the bigger issues that we're uh, dealing with is justice and um uh, i can remember a few years ago uh, before the pandemic before the dark times um in my early days of working at the uh, free press uh being invited to uh, spend uh, some time with you socially and uh, we happened to see uh, this person who i got to meet and spend some social time with and i really appreciated his insight and and I'm really glad that he was uh, willing and able to come on the podcast here. You had an opportunity to interview the Honorable Kelvin Gertzen, uh, who's the representative from Steinbach. He's the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General. And uh, he's also responsible for the Manitoba Public Insurance Corporation and the Government House Leader and so on. But, you know, I, I know him most of all of, uh, you know, guy that's just willing to sit there and talk to you about almost anything. Like I've really appreciated uh, talking with Calvin Gertzen and regardless of where you're from or whether you're media or not, uh, he's a pretty open and frank guy. And so uh, we're real lucky to yeah. have him on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've obviously known Calvin for a long time um, ever since he entered politics. Um, you know, I, I mean, really, it doesn't really matter political stripe. You know, Calvin could teach a masterclass on, how politicians should interact with the media. He's confident. He's well-informed. You know, I obviously don't agree with everything that he says or does, but um, he doesn't hide uh, from uh, from people in the media. Uh, he doesn't inherently mistrust us. Uh, you have to earn his mistrust is the way I like to, <laughs> I, I like to put it. But no, I, like he actually makes the point that in all of his years, he doesn't believe he's been badly treated. In all the interviews that he's done, he says he's maybe been misquoted once, and even then it was mostly just a misunderstanding. And I think that, you know, his his example, I wish he was more of an example to a provincial government, which, uh, you know, quite frankly, is not emulating uh, Minister Gertzen's uh, uh, example when it comes to media relations. Um, we had a chance to talk a little bit about MPI, uh, which I've written a lot about and which he is the minister responsible for, and also about the recent debate about bail conditions and whether or not we should make it harder for certain kinds 
of accused persons to obtain bail. And uh, it's a fascinating conversation and uh, uh, somewhat amusing at times, I would say. And uh, so now let's uh, go to our feature interview with uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General uh, and former interim premier, I might add, Kelvin Gertzen. If you're keeping track at home, and I know many of you are, Kelvin Gertson is the second Minister of the Crown from the Progressive Conservative government to appear on the podcast. Apparently now, like now that we've broken the seal, they're lined up to get lined in. Up. I'm beating them off with a stick, Kelvin. I, I wonder know? how I ended up being second, though. You know, like, uh, <laughs> but I know, I mean, Rochelle was well deserving as being as being the first one. But it's good yes. to be here with you, and uh, so you don't have to fly uh, solo. We should take our stick on the road, maybe if this goes well. Yeah, like, well, I'm I'm thinking that we could do stand up at the Smitties and Steinbeck. Oh for yeah, sure. that'll yeah, go over really that, well. That used yeah, to be that'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> that used to be the. Uh, I had for a period of time uh, a number of chance meetings uh if i'm not mistaken uh you you like to take your mom there i do well i mean my mom like we just like to go anywhere it's right when we're when we can have that time so uh yeah i do I like to take my mom there and sometimes i uh, well, there's so many options now it's time it's different now right it's grown and everything but uh hey anytime you can take your mother out for coffee and she's still alive and doing well you consider that uh, valuable time all that you could that sound effect was me knocking on wood yeah and, uh, yeah for sure well you know thanks for being here and uh you know like honestly um uh, it's kind of hard to pare down what to talk about with you because it seems like you make more announcements and do more scrums have and, more trouble and more have more <laughs> trouble than any other minister of the crown so uh but you know initially uh the, the request was to speak to you about the current uh, I, I don't want to say obsession, but there is a there is intensive scrutiny on the issue of bail and bail conditions, and um, you know it's and I think it's safe to say that the role that bail conditions play in the on how the justice system functions and its outcomes it's obviously it's an important uh, it's an important topic and you've had a lot to say about bail conditions, so I'll just like just to kind of get things going. So why? Why bail conditions? Like, why has that become the the current issue of interest for federal and provincial ministers of justice? I mean, it's not the only area of interest, but it's something we started talking about last summer, and in particular as it relates to bail for those who have used bear spray or bladed weapons, knives. That was a particular concern in Manitoba, so we started to raise that. Uh, last summer because we saw the issue uh, really percolating in the province that a lot of people who were committing violent crimes with those kinds of weapons were out on bail. So we didn't say that individuals shouldn't have the right to bail. We're just saying, you know, reverse the onus. Make it a little bit more challenging if, if they're using those type of weapons. Went to a, an FPT, a federal provincial meeting with other ministers of justice across uh, Canada held in Halifax in the fall of last year. And I want raise this issue and you know you, you followed some of these things before usually you get half the provinces agree and half the provinces say no and maybe quebec says you know we're we're Whatever. different we're separate <laughs> um but everybody agreed everybody says we have an issue not necessarily just with bear spray mm -hmm. or knife, but just said bail is a problem and that shocked me that surprised me uh, that everybody agreed from ndp provinces in bc to you know other conservative governments uh and from there you know the premiers uh, issued a call 
So I, I think it's both important, but it's also symbolic of what's what's happening in that there's a lot of violent offenses. People are worried that individuals who should not have been released, who've already proven to be a dangerous society, have been released. So it's a real thing. It's uh, it's it's an obvious sort of issue, and it's one that's common across Canada. So but it's not the only issue. No, for sure. And I, and uh, you know, honestly, uh, we had uh, Minister Lametti on the show to talk about the. Joyce and David uh, Milgard uh, yeah. legislation, and uh, in some future podcast, we'll sort of try to get a because I know the reaction from provincial ministers of justice is going to be very interesting because uh, that if they do what they want to do, that's going to have a big impact on. Uh, well, on and, and Minister Lamani has committed to to taking action. He said he would do it before the end of this session of of the Parliament. That's coming up in a few weeks, so we're, we're holding him to, to his word that we'll yeah. see the text of that. So uh, getting back to bail, um, so the word reform bail has been used, and I, I think that, I mean, neither the federal government nor the provinces are speaking in specifics right now uh, about uh, how to quote-unquote reform bail uh, whether it's going to be, you know, if it's going to be tougher to get bail, is it going to be tougher for everybody to get bail? Are we going to be more surgical and, and targeted? What does the word, the term reform bail mean to you? So I mentioned that fall meeting that we had uh, last year in Halifax. That then uh, sparked another meeting in Ottawa in March. And coming out of that meeting with a commitment that we got from the federal government, was that they were in agreement with if an individual had committed a violent offense mm-hmm. um, and um, and were given bail, so and then they committed another violent offense, then there would be reverse onus. So mm-hmm. a repeat violent offender uh, would have a reverse onus for bail. Doesn't mean they can't apply for bail. Doesn't mean they can't yep. get bail. It just means they have to demonstrate why it is that. Uh, they won't be a danger to society. Also, and it didn't get as much attention, um, currently when it comes to bail, usually the judges will have to be very formally you know, demonstrate that the individual isn't going to be a danger to the person to whom they've committed a, an offense against. Um, the other commitment we got from the federal government would be that they would change it and so that the judge would also have to consider that they weren't a broader community uh, danger. So not mm-hmm. just to the individual. And why that's important is that you know, random attacks uh, aren't always, um, you know, well covered when it comes to that kind of, when you're just looking at the individual and mm-hmm. saying, is this individual who was previously attacked in danger, that doesn't, that doesn't speak well to random attacks where the community as a whole might be in danger. So that was another important commitment. So it was pretty surgical, you know, repeat violent offenders and ensuring that there isn't a danger to the broader community. So, okay. Um, you know, uh, bail uh, and um, anything that requires uh, a prosecutor and a judge to make a decision on the the level of threat posed by someone. Um, like the the contrary argument or the argument, you know, uh, that maybe mitigates some of the interests that the ministers of justice have in this issue is that you know. Yes, there are people who offend, and some people do some really, really horrible things uh, while out on bail, but that um, it, it is still fairly rare when you think of the enormous volume of people uh, moving through the justice system. I'm not trying to say that uh, any one tragedy 
uh, involving uh, someone out on bail isn't a reason to look at the system. But I think the you know the counter argument has been, yeah, you know that this is it's just it's a bit of a false flag uh, argument because you can make it tougher for people to get bail, but all you're doing is throwing more people into incarceration in a system that's already you know for in, ter in terms of the people being held in remand awaiting the disposition of their case is already like completely overwhelmed is there like is there do you think there's any any anything viable about the argument that this is more political than it is really about making the justice system work well well i, I don't in the sense that it, and going back to the point that i made earlier i mean every province representing different political parties felt exactly the same way. And that's a very rare thing in Canada. When you have when you have every provincial government and they're never all the same political stripe, you know, sitting around a table agreeing on it. That, that's a very rare thing in Canadian politics. Uh, so I don't believe it's political. I believe it's real. And I believe that, that individuals are hearing it in their individual provinces. It's not just a Manitoba problem. A problem. It's happening across Canada. And so, you know, so one of the strongest voices at that table was the NDP government in British Columbia, who was demanding bail reform. You know, there's not a ton of things that I would agree with mm -hmm. necessarily with the provincial NDP in uh, BC. There are some, but on this one, absolutely in lockstep. Uh, and with other provinces as well, because it, it's and it's not a small number. You, you know, you we're do, however, share one important. Let's hear it. You're, you're governing, and that well, is the great that is the great equalizer. So if you're governing, and every every province and every major city within every province, the the in particular random attacks, random violence, uh, particularly in the cores or downtowns of city, like that is. One of the that that is one of the current no major concerns. So you guys all share the same political. You, you suffer the same political burden when this is happening, and the public is asking, like, what are you doing? We suffer the same political problem, but that can be true in in a lot of different things. And I mean, healthcare. There's gonna be a lot of challenges, but there can be different approaches. And that's usually my experience at these tables. Is that you know you you all feel sort of have a common problem that's going on but there's usually quite a bit of different approaches on this mm -hmm. one everybody lined up and said bail's an issue mm -hmm. uh, and that is it's rare that everybody sort of unifies around not a solution because there's not a magic solution not a magic bullet on any of this right um, but everybody agreed that this had to be dealt with so so I, I don't think it's unified around politics so it, prior to um, this becoming a big issue let's say in the last third of last year, this really sort of came into focus as, as the top of mind issue, it seemed for justice ministers or one of them. But if I, if I had, and I do, if I had talked to, uh, to judges uh, and prosecutors and private bar lawyers about the problems with the bail system, the answer I would have got would have been completely different. What they would have told me, what they have told me, is that their biggest concern is that there are too many boilerplate provisions on, uh, for uh, when bail is granted. So the restrictions that are placed on an individual are regardless of uh, what offense they may be seeking bail on uh, are very, very similar. So there's prohibitions on drugs, prohibitions on alcohol, maybe associating with certain people. There might be restraining orders involved, those type of things. Sure. And that, so the biggest problem they would have identified was the how the system is too sensitive in revoking bail on things that are not really, don't represent a public threat. So somebody on bail who it does not demonstrate any 
substance abuse problem, but is told that they can't drink or use drugs. And so then what happens is on an on a you know unscheduled check, they they're found to that they had a beer. And the number of times that people get revoked and thrown back into the system creates a capacity issue. Um, so is there, at the same time as we're looking at being surgical and targeted, are there not other mitigating, you know, isn't there not another side of the coin that needs to be looked at here? Uh, sure. And, and I've never said that when it comes to, you know, dealing with the issue that we have with crime, that it's any one particular solution. The issue of bail uh, was real. It was identifiable. It was something that I think the federal mm -hmm. government could take relatively quick action on. But I've also never dismissed the fact that there are provincial things that need to be done as well. We've talked about that in terms of uh, monitoring. So we talked about electronic monitoring and introducing a new program there. Returning the program. Returning yeah. the program, but it's new technology. Um, so it's not the same program. Ensuring that the, there is more monitoring of individuals, making sure that there are more support for those who mm -hmm. are out on either probation or bail. In the same way that, you know, people say, well, you just want to put everybody in, in jail and, and what's that going to do? Well, you know, we've worked on our, on our jail system, so we have therapeutic drug facilities in Headingley and the Women's Correctional Center. We're building healing lodges in a number of different provincial jails. So the doing time just doesn't have to be wasted time. I mean, I know that if somebody's in jail, uh, just having them sit there uh, and not, you know, try to do anything that's going to prevent them from going back into their life that they got them into jail isn't helpful. So we're doing, you know, both. And you can walk and chew gum at the same time on this. So yeah, we have to make sure that there's safety. And those who have demonstrated to be uh, danger to the community need to be removed from the community. Um, those who need support need additional support, and those who are going to be in jail need to find some ability to to try to you know, get reformed in jail. And we're working on all three of those things. And and possibly because um, I'm assured that um, the the bail breaches or revocations are like that. That just creates a huge speed bump in the system like the courts and uh and uh prosecutors uh just like it's a constant constant uh concern so like that's obviously maybe not the first time you've heard of a problem like that but is, is that something like would you sort of uh commit that anything that makes bail less available to certain kinds of people crimes and condition you know circumstances then on the other side, we're not revoking uh, people for really casual reasons uh, when really you're going to need the space because in invariably what you're talking about, you're talking about keeping more of these people in remand. Well, right. And, and listen, I mean, so you're talking about two different challenges and maybe yep. two different problems. And but I'm as, as the Minister of Justice, I'm not going to suggest that we shouldn't have the right kind of bail laws and the right kind of a bail reform to keep the mm -hmm. community safe because we don't have enough space or because it's going to cause other problems. Then the responsibility for me is to deal with those other problems. But we're not going to make a decision and say, well, we're going to let the community remain less safe and not push for bail reform because it's going to cause some downstream effect uh, you know, in, in the jail system where we need more space. If that's the case, then we'll develop more space. But the ultimate, you know, ultimately mm -hmm. we have to do what's right for public safety and then, you know, look at the downstream effects on that. So is, is this the kind of thing that ultimately require, requires the federal government to enunciate this through the criminal code partly? On bail reform? Yeah. Entirely. Yeah. So they, they need to make a criminal code change. Mr. Lametti has 
committed, mm-hmm. not just to me, but to every provincial AG and to the uh, premiers, that that will come this spring. Spring is, well, I'm looking out my window here with you, Dan. It's and almost it, completely It feels spring. like it's, yeah. it's spring, right? The bombers are in training camp, so yeah. we must be getting close to spring. But Parliament's going to yeah. recess in a, in a couple of weeks, and so I'm hoping he's going, not hoping, I'm expecting he's going to fulfill his commitment. One of the things that some observers have pointed out is that um, uh, this government did, however, ration some resources for community corrections and monitoring of people on so that was the 2017 decision to end the uh, ankle bracelet electronic monitoring program and um, there has been mention of uh, 160 positions in in community and in custody corrections i have now i the the 2017 one i did find you know background that confirmed that on the 160 positions somebody's you know adding things together to come up with that number but there's no doubt that there hasn't been I think it's safe to say your government hasn't expanded or enhanced uh, bail supervision or post-release supervision uh, community corrections since you've been in power like let's talk about the 2017 decision yeah. so like so why get rid of the uh, the electronic monitoring program at that time so so look at the legacy of that program right so me and you have been around a long time, Dan. When I got elected, I don't know what you mean. Well, okay, I'll go to. I'll be more definitive after okay. the podcast. Um, well, I could be a bit more definitive now. When I got elected in uh, 2003, um, there was a panel for new MLAs, and they had uh, reporters come in to talk about dealing with the press. And you were on that panel. Oh, good lord! I, I thought then already that you were sort of a stalwart of the media. But anyway. Um, stalwart is an interest. I've never heard that one. I, I can think of some synonyms, but we'll go with I stalwart. Thought, I could have thought of yeah. other things, but I'll stick with stalwart okay. uh, for the sake of this yeah. is a children's show, right? Yeah. Um, but but listen, I um, uh, when 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 I, so we've been around a long time. I look at that program with the uh, ankle uh, braces. They started because of high risk car thieves, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's when it came in, uh, and that was sort of a mid two thousand, you know, two thousand eight issue. Uh, significant issue, somewhat uh, dissipated because of uh, monitoring, somewhat because of immobilizers, mm-hmm. and somewhat because of, of other issues. Um, but that was old technology. And, you know, 2008 didn't change a lot. Um, you know, so there was it had to be a decision, I guess, about whether you move to new technology. Was it, uh, you know, particularly effective? The decision was made at that point to go away from it because that technology wasn't doing what, uh, you know, what it was doing in 2008. Uh, now we've had some discussion with other provinces, other jurisdictions. Uh, it's changed significantly. I mean, mm-hmm. in five years, you think about even how your, you know, the phone that you're looking at right now has changed and the different technology that it has. One of the things, as an example, um, is that it's more uh, proactive. And yep. so if an individual is wearing some kind of a monitoring device for a domestic violence situation, it can actually indicate to the person to whom they've got an order against that that individual is, is in a nearby proximity. And some of that can eliminate a threat, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's just a small town issue, right, where you're in the same grocery store, you know, and, you, and you just it's just good to be notified, oh, right. this might be an unintended breach. So the technology is different. Uh, the environment's different in terms of increasing crime. So it, uh, it made a lot of sense to bring it back. Uh, you know, uh, personal disclosure. So my, my mom was a federal parole officer. 
And uh, I guess that, you know, when you have uh, three boys and you're a single mom, that prepares you for a career in corrections. <laughs> like, go figure. Uh, but you're not comparing the media to somebody. Who, no, I no you don't. You, what I'm saying is you don't know my brothers. Um, so the uh, but she also spent some time in, in provincial probation services in yeah. Ontario. OK, so, you know, what I know is um, bail supervision, uh, probation, parole services have never been. Uh, the most supported part of the corrections system and justice system, like it, it is, it, it they've it's always been kind of a poor cousin. Yeah. You know, you've got uh, you know law enforcement, then you have prosecutorial services, and then you have formal in custody corrections, and then all the stuff that comes out. It's kind of it is kind of an afterthought. Um, so to to really make the bail reform work, and and you put probation enhancements on that as well. You really are talking about taking a look at the, uh, this part of the justice system that really, I mean, maybe you'll disagree that it's been underserved, under, you no, know. I don't know that I would disagree with that. I mean, so look, I mean, first of all, if you deal with that top end on bail and you keep the people who should be incarcerated mm-hmm. incarcerated, that certainly helps people who are doing probation. Um, but then everything in, in probation is a bit of a risk assessment, right? Because they're dealing with pretty big uh, pretty big numbers of people that they're monitoring. And so they themselves are making judgments between, you know, who's a higher risk and who's not a high risk. So the programs that we're enhancing are exactly those programs where uh, probation officers or the Department of Justice is saying these folks have been granted probation or they're on bail. Uh, and they we are deeming them to be a higher risk. So we're going to put both more support and more monitoring uh, around them. So that is, you know, those are judgment calls. Judgment calls happen in the justice system all the time. But if at the top end of it, you can stop individuals who shouldn't be being released from being released, that helps those in probation. But then we have to provide more support in there too. So is it, you know, you defined it as a poor cousin or the forgotten part of the justice system. Uh, it maybe isn't as seen as much, the work that they're, yep. that they're doing, until things go bad and then it's known. No, for sure. I, I mean, I just, I think of it as well though too, that like the, the job of probation and parole has always it like uh, is always been overwhelmed. Like they they never, you know. My mom worked at uh, one of the the biggest uh, community correctional facilities, uh, Jane Center in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only was that that's one of the busiest and densest places in the country, but you know, all of the worst of the worst offenders that were uh, subject to statutory release would end up resident there. And would end up, you know, sort of a, another file folder on the corner of uh, uh, my mom's desk and her colleagues. Um, I, I think it's, I think, you know, part of the, but part of the problem as well, too, and I'm interested in your perspective. You know, uh, people seem to conflate community corrections with uh, being not so tough on crime. Like, you know, that it's, if you have programming for people who've been released from jail, well, you're coddling them or you're, you're you know, you're, you're uh, uh, rewarding them for or whatever. Uh, and I'm not, I don't think you would disagree so much with the way the public might understand or misunderstand certain aspects of the justice system. But, um, man, when you think of how closely related these things are to addiction and mental yes. health, um, don't we have to kind of like throw the gauntlet down now and sort of say, like, we either care for these people, get them the help that they need, or else we are going to have random street attacks and random violence and we're never going to escape it because you yeah. just you, these people a lot of them never do anything bad enough to stay in jail for a long time 
it seems, until they do something that's really, really bad. I, I think that what happens when we discuss this sometimes in the media and in the public is that people move to an either-or camp, that it's either going to be, you've got to lock everybody up, or you know, it doesn't help to lock anybody up. And, and I don't sort of prescribe to either worldview. I think that there are individuals who demonstrate that they are a danger to society. Bail reform is important on that. But if they're going to be in a provincial jail, we're putting in things we talked about, uh, healing lodges and therapeutic uh, communities that can provide that support when they're in jail to hopefully, you know, when they get out that they're, they're not in the same position that when they went in. But we're doing significant things. And I think if you talk to some of the grand chiefs or talk about some of the restorative justice initiatives that are happening, because it's both important, but I think it's, it is different than the 90s. I mean, I think people recognize that there's a connection between homelessness, addiction, uh, mental health. I mean, we've talked about even my mm -hmm. own family, my, coming from a family of addiction. Dad was uh, an addict, died when I was young as a result of that. Probably was some mental health issues in there as well, but we didn't talk about it that way in the 1970s. So I understand that part of it. Mm -hmm. I understand that you need to have that support. Uh, I consider myself, you know, coming from a family, I grew up in government housing, addictions uh, in my family. My mom was a single mother, we shared some of that experience. Um, but for some community support, right. I might be in a very different place. And so I understand the importance of community support, but I don't think we need to fall into the trap of it's either this or that. I mm -hmm. think we can do, uh, I think we can do both. We need to ensure folks who shouldn't be, you know, walking the streets aren't on the streets, but people who just need some support get that support. Switching gears uh, quickly, um, one of the other pressing issues you've been involved in is a continental discussion about what to do about irregular uh, border crossings. And, um, you know, the situation in the United States right now is appears to be pure chaos. Um, now, a lot of the attention is on the southern border, but, um, you know, there are pandemic restrictions that affected the flow uh, of immigration have ended. Uh, and this has become this this weird flare, like starting pistol for a, a, a unheard of levels of irregular uh, uh, crossings and attempts. So the position, and it's not just you; it's a lot of the, the provinces have sort of said, "Well, Ottawa has to lead on this." Like you know, we want to, we want to be involved and do what we can, but Ottawa has to lead. What do, do we have an idea yet about what it is we're supposed to be doing? To, to deal with this situation? Uh, so, well, they have to lead because they are responsible for the border and they yeah. are responsible for, for immigration. So, so absolutely, they, they have to lead. Um, you know, part of the challenge is that the situation changes in different ways. So I was immigration minister in the province for a couple of years. I helped most of the roles in government, it seems. And, You've uh, had trouble keeping a job. Yeah, I do. I have a hard time. I can't okay. find one that people, it's okay. like, people like me. You okay with that? a lot of people in politics have trouble keeping that, a job. That's it. Eh? Yeah. Thanks for that confidence, Dan. My, <laughs> my self-esteem is dropping by the second. Um, and, but at that time, when I was Minister of Immigration, uh, of course, we had people coming from the states into Canada, right? Mm -hmm. It was during the, during the Trump presidency and the challenges that were happening at that time. So we had the folks moving from the states trying to get into Canada, and now we're seeing more of an influx sometimes of people trying to go from Canada into uh, the United States. And it has a lot to do with geopolitical issues and what's happening in, in uh, the United States primarily at any given time. Um, but it also you know, has to do with you know, how are we securing our borders, how are we ensuring that we're dealing with individuals. But we have a pretty, on a provincial side, it's a little limited. Now, there are some things that, that you know, we've taken 
you know, particular stands on. And as an example, um, Lloyd Axworthy came to, to this office and said to me, it's not right that individuals who are being, you know, held on some sort of an immigration issue are held in a provincial jail mm-hmm. when it's not a justice issue. They haven't been accused of a crime. They haven't been accused of being a danger. They just have some paperwork issues and you're putting them in jail. So we wrote to the federal government and said, we're not going to do that anymore. That has to stop. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Lloyd Axworthy, different political party, but he was absolutely right, yeah. you know, in terms of his comments. We made some changes there. You know, I've talked to the RCMP about border control and border patrol, um, not from, a, you know, a Canadian Border Services protection uh, perspective, because that is federal, but just patrolling that area and what can we do? Because people are putting themselves at risk, right? If it, maybe not so much today, but I mean, in the middle of winter, and we saw the tragedy of that. I mean, what can we do yeah. on that side of it? More broadly, look, I next uh, next month, I'll be speaking with American officials. Again, I'm co-chairing, I have for about a decade, the Canada-U.S. Uh, Relations Committee for the Midwestern part of, um, of Canada and the United States. We're going to be meeting in Detroit and talking about that issue, uh, you know, we're going on to the, looking at the, the Windsor. A lot of our discussion is often commercial, right? And the For sure. commercial trade. Uh, and, and how do you pre-clearance in that? But there's a lot more discussion about border control from individuals. So does it, would you also say, though, to, because there were changes made to the, the, the third-party third agreements. Party, yeah. Do we need to go back and take a look at, because it, it appears to be we're right in the middle of the law of unintended consequences. I don't think the U.S. anticipated when they made the request what the result has been. So even if they're not concerned about the impact it's having on Canada, they certainly should be concerned about the impact it's having on their own you know, jurisdiction. Do, we need, do you think we need to go back and maybe discuss it again and, and find a better a better protocol. Well, I mean, I think obviously what's what's happening now isn't working well. I think everybody can mm-hmm. agree on that. You know, is this the top issue for President Biden and and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau at this point? I don't know. Um, but I mean, I think we need to talk about a lot of different things when it comes to the border. So you'll remember after 9/11, there was lots of discussion about sort of a North American kind of border security, and and that and Harper was big on talking about that. And I think we need to maybe have some discussion about that again, right? I mean, how do we look at security? And that's more, you know, security from a different perspective. But mm-hmm. but talk about that from a North American perspective uh, when we talk about trade. Uh, we demonstrated during the pandemic that even though the borders were closed to non-commercial um, travel, basically, the trade part worked really, really well. And about mm-hmm. 98% of the, the goods that were moving continued to move. There were supply chain issues for a lot of different reasons. But, but in my role on that Canada-U.S. Relations Committee, we saw that that continued to work well. But we haven't figured out, you know, this issue of, of uh, those who are using the border in an illegal or in a regular way. Uh, and I and I do think that the the, the two prime prime minister and the president need to sit down and make this a bit of a priority. Changing gears once again. Yeah. So uh, many of the listeners of the podcast may not realize that when um, the first minister gets around to putting together his or her cabinet, you know they they slot everybody into a portfolio, yeah. and then there's a series of other responsibilities. Yeah. I like to call it the basket of hand grenades. <laughs> so, and everybody gets a hand grenade, right? I've so, had a few. Yeah, hand grenade for you and hand grenade. So you're not you, talking house leader, I don't think. I think no, it's probably no, no, going in a different direction. No, that, no, because you like doing house leader. Well, I, I do, but I've also done it for almost 15 years yeah. now. <laughs> At some point, you know, it's, it's uh, you, you sort of the joy sort of. Dis- 
dissipates a bit. No, uh, no, I'm thinking mostly of the minister responsible for Manitoba public insurance. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of periods where that wasn't really a hand grenade. Uh, you know, you're saying I'm bad luck. Uh, well, I don't think it's your fault. Oh, thanks. Right? So, okay, put the mark that down. Um, <laughs> but okay, so uh, th this year has seen a, a series of uh, revelations at Manitoba public insurance. Uh, also, starting last year in uh, hearings at the Public Utilities Board, essentially, if I can summarize very quickly, there have been some controversial things done. Uh, the uh, Information Technology Project, Project Nova, is $200 million over budget, and its completion and, and fate is still somewhat up in the air. Um, there have been some uh, controversial business decisions made around untendered contracts, around hiring. Uh, and then most recently, um, the Free Press reported about um, uh, the CEO's decision to uh, award himself uh, performance bonuses uh, and uh, a fairly uh, uh, generous number of days traveling on business. I, I don't really want to go into the, the weeds on all of that stuff. But what you I just did. did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I'm, now I'm going to kind of trim, oh, okay. uh, trim the lawn a little bit. <laughs> No, I, I think the, the bigger question that we haven't really had a chance to discuss, uh, and we have talked about some of these stories, is kind of the issue of, like, what is, what is government's role in the oversight of a Crown entity? Um, the, the CEO, Mr. Herberlin, made a comment that he met with you on a fortnightly basis. Uh, an over-exaggeration. Well, you know, uh, as, uh, hyperbole, yeah, I'm yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. So, But, you know, that he met with you on a regular basis sure. and assured you that, you know... So I guess the first question is, do you feel that he was being completely forthright about some of the stuff? Because I think that after you learned some of the details of what was going on, you were forced, you know, you issued directives, you issued yeah. public cautions. So can, can we assume that you weren't the normal channels, you weren't necessarily getting all the information you needed? So one step back, Crown Corporations and their interrelation with government is, is challenging and difficult. It's probably even difficult for the media from that from a reporting perspective because Crown Corporations are, are essentially independent uh, of government, but and yet you have a minister who's responsible primarily for the Act, so I'm responsible for the MPI Act, but I'm still accountable. I may not be responsible for every decision, but I'm accountable to speak to every decision. Uh, that happens. The frustrating some part sometimes as a minister, when you're a minister of a department, you tend to see things as they work their way up and you can, you know, put a little bit more influence in terms of what's coming. Uh, with Crown Corporations, you often find out after the fact or you mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of input into the decisions because the boards are really working with the, with the CEOs and, and you're relying mm -hmm. on information coming uh, that you think is that they think is pertinent to to come to maybe beforehand, but on the other hand, uh, you know you've probably Dan in your uh, fifty years of uh, journalism, uh, whatever it's been, that hurt. Uh, that really hurt. Uh, probably half the stories have been that government's interfering too much with crown corporations, and the other half that they're not interfering enough, and it is a difficult balance, right? So you're trying to, and as a minister, it's sometimes frustrating because you find out about things that you might not agree with, but you know, you didn't have a lot of input into, into the decision. So, you know, we're trying to ensure that there's better, you know, communication in terms of hearing about things in advance. Mm -hmm. So there can be more input uh, in advance. Uh, so the government can, you know, provide some of its own perspectives 
ultimately, you know, the board and the corporations are going to make decisions, but government should be able to provide perspective because it's a crown corporation, right. it's not a private corporation. You know, there's a public responsibility. I've got to answer to the fact that why is the crown corporation hiring 400 more people, which I disagreed with uh, at the time um, and, you know, had to sort of push back on some of that. Uh, untendered contracts, you know, should have heard about that perhaps uh, yeah. in, in a more timely way. Because I have concern about untendered contracts. Not that there aren't sometimes reasons for them. Emergencies, there's nobody else to do the job. Um, but we shouldn't be finding out about those things, you know, pretty late in the game. Uh, so that's been some of my concern. Project Nova, um, I, I think, you know, I've continued to get uh, updates on it. I, I personally think it's on uh, a timeliness uh, path that's uh, deliverable. I think it's on a financial path that's deliverable. Um, but still, uh, we need to ensure that we're hearing about these things in a more timely way. So yeah, I mean, do I meet with the, the, the CEO? I've met with the, the CEO, but uh, meetings are meetings, uh, but you, know, you need to hear about things at those meetings that are relevant and, and important. And as you know, sometimes in government, it's not you know, what you're told, it's what you're not told. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not always sure you know, where to ask those questions, I mean, that can be a challenge as a minister in a department, but you figure that out pretty quickly as a minister. It's particularly hard in a Crown Corporation because they are operating independently. Yeah, no, for sure. And it, it, like, it, it is fairly represented that it is not, uh, the interactions are not clearly defined. Uh, they are defined, but there are a lot of gaps in, in the definition that don't yeah. account for certain situations. I was told that, that government is CC'd on all materials that are tabled at board meetings. Um, the board is undertaking a, or has undertaken and completed, is uh, what I know now, uh, a, a review of the performance of the CEO. Uh, so I guess, you know, my question is, and I, I'm understand, I understand that no one feels comfortable talking about the contents of it, but can you tell me, have you seen it? I've not, I've not yeah. seen it. Okay. Um, I expect to, uh, I understand there was a review undertaken for a variety of different reasons, uh, maybe three months ago or so. Uh, I've not seen the contents of it. I expect to, to see it. I, um, as you might uh, not know, there's, there's a new chair uh, of the board. The former chair um, stepped down a couple of days ago. So government's appointed uh, a new chair to amount to a public insurance. Um, that's not public yet but uh, Dan because we've been together for a long time I'm I can tell you that the new uh, chair will be Ward Keith who was uh, vice president of MPI for um, a couple of decades perhaps long time anyway um, and you know that was first of all I want to say you know um, Mike Sullivan who who tendered his resignation a couple of days ago you know he'd been chair for a long time and probably longer than most chairs of crown corporations so uh, I appreciate uh, the work that, that he's done, and that's challenging. And I had you know good discussions with Mike, and I know he did his best in uh, in some challenging situations over the last uh, you know couple of years. Um, but with his resignation, we needed somebody who could sort of quickly step in, yeah. understand the organization, understand the role of a crown corporation. So uh, Ward Keith uh, agreed to to do that role. Um, uh, government agreed uh, with his uh, appointment, uh, so it's it's official already. But I guess it'll be public, well, either on Tuesday or whenever you report it. I think that the the, the remaining questions that exist uh, in this story, as it's seen as a political story, is sort of you know how and when 
does the minister responsible for MPI uh, get involved? And this is tangentially connected to the review the board did, but is there like, is do you believe if you felt it was necessary in any crown corporation that you were responsible for, that that if there needed to be a change in executive leadership of any of the crowns, that that is an issue that you can uh, fairly and legally take up, but directly with the board of directors. So the board of directors makes the decision on on the CEO. That's how mm -hmm. it's established. But I think what I've demonstrated over the last uh, you know many months that I've been the minister and maybe even in government. Generally, I'm not worried about taking action when I think it's the right thing to do. So um, two ministerial directives in the last uh, few months appointed, reappointed a uh, government MLA back to the board to try to draw that connection and a strong government MLA to try to draw that connection. Just told you we've appointed a new uh, sure. board, uh, board chair. I don't think I've, um, I don't think that I've, uh, have a reputation of being shy to take action when I think it's necessary to take action. Fair enough. Um, Minister Gertzen, Kelvin, uh, thank you very much uh, for the time. I, I will say reporters love to complain about not having access <laughs> to people. And uh, much, I'm sure, to the chagrin of some of your uh, co-workers, you, uh, you've always been available and always been uh, pretty frank and forthright in interviews. So that is always appreciated. Nigan's going to really hate himself for missing this one, which in an odd way makes me feel good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, thanks for doing this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we're going to be speaking to each other more. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I've said this before. Listen, I've been around for 20 years in elected life and a little bit before that in this building uh, in different roles in the 90s. I don't agree with everything you write, Dan. I don't agree with everything every reporter writes. But I think that we've always had a respectful relationship. I think I've always been able to say if I didn't agree with something, I think it's always been, because I, I understand the role has, the media has a role, has an important role in a democracy. Uh, and I worry about the state of our democracy. Maybe that's a, a discussion for a different broadcast or a different podcast. Um, but I, I value the role that the media has, and I think you value the role that we have. And so that's, that's an important place yeah. to start. So you heard it here first. The second Friday of every month will be the Kelvin Gertzen and the Lone Ranger show. <laughs> We're going on the road to Smitty's. That's right. And that's Chicken right. Chef. Chicken Chef, too. Chicken Chef, too, <laughs> yep. Uh, Kelvin, thanks a lot again. And, uh, yeah, best of luck with all of the things we talked about. Thanks very much. What a great interview with Justice Minister Kelvin Gertzen, who... Uh, one thing I really appreciate is not only does he have a great deal of uh, experience in politics, mm -hmm. I mean, even being involved with the Reform Party at one time, you know, but that he's able to sort of stretch the different realms within the, that movement. I mean, even supporting Stuart Murray uh, in the past, you know, like there is a real interesting dy dynamism in kind of Kelvin Gertzen's conservatism that I think is worth noting and seen a lot during that interview. Well, and, and, and as he uh, as he underlined in the interview, he's not exactly the guy you think he is. He is, in some respects, exactly the guy you think he is. Like, and he doesn't he doesn't hide uh, his uh, his conservatism. He doesn't hide his faith, which is a big you know is there's a big interface there. But I think when you you think about his life experience and uh, you know the fact that he grew up in rather difficult circumstances, um, you know, uh, uh, father was an alcoholic, uh, you know, mother, uh, single mother, and that he grew up in a family that required, uh, you know, support of uh, government to make ends meet. 
um, it, it does uh, it does kind of show you that uh, when you get to meet people in politics, um, they are more complex than the characters they play on TV, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, it was a good get for us. We're we're a better podcast for having them on. Oh, uh, for sure. And and I uh, I just want to say, you know, like the the kind of array of different people over the past few weeks that I think has been really indicative of a uh, a that. Manitoba politics is very dynamic and interesting, but uh, also be that there's uh, there's this wide array of opinions of people who care deeply about this place. And uh, and I really like that we've been able to give a good span recently, but um, we've reached yet near the end. And we want to uh, thank our producer, Adam, and all the good folks at CGNU. And uh, also huge thanks to all of our colleagues at the Free Press and uh, great work that they're doing over there. And Wendy Sawatsky and Paul Samin and the great people who support us. Also, a big thanks, as always, to our families and to those who stand up for us and, and encourage us, especially when we go through the ups and downs of uh, of being this in this podcast world and the media world. And uh, and I especially want to thank you, my good brother on the podcast, for carrying some of this heavy lifting. I know that I've uh, been on the road a lot. So, yeah, no, uh, no worries. And, uh, you know, I dream of a day when we can be back together <laughs> <laughs> next week yes. yeah next week okay goodbye everybody all right miigwech